1: welcome i'm dr jeremy lookalbaugh industrial organizational psychology consultant and workplace communication and negotiation coach also we have tom bradshaw with us a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too he is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community
2: well hello everyone and welcome to our weekly gathering of ios hrs recruiters and one actor as we try to navigate the world of business and make it a little better place Uh, and today we're going to jump we're right into the heart of what's going on today in the real world, uh, Dr. Destiny, AI in business and ethics. And for a lot of people, those just don't sit together. <laughs> AI, business, ethics, so it's so easily to go astray. You know, I, when it comes to ethics and business, you know, I'm the type of person who, who often has issues. Uh, You know, especially when we saw the lockdown first happening, everyone was working from home. And the first thing business did was invest in spyware because they didn't trust their employees. So here we are now in that wonderful world of AI. And I'm just going, well, I think it's time to buy that cabin in the woods. Uh, So how do we navigate this?
3: That's a great question. And last week, we talked about some of the potential ethical implications of including these types of approaches in your workspace and outside of it. And so this week, we're going to talk more about that. And I don't know if anybody realized, but right after we had that conversation, the White House put out a press release the same day. And the press release was about new actions to promote responsible AI innovation that protects Americans' rights and safety. It could have been more relevant, current. And if you look at some of those White House press releases, and I'll include it um, also in the uh, chat here, but you can look it up. It's straight from the White House. Um, it's really interesting, the kinds of things that people are worried about. One of the suggestions they have is that we actually um, use auditors for AI. So like, if we don't already have ethical boundaries, how are we going to audit? You know, and then there's this whole idea of like, who audits the auditors, right? So because, you know, whenever we talk about auditing and stuff like that, it becomes a whole new ballgame of, of ethics, which is interesting all in itself. Um, So there's that. And then the side of this is like the IO psychology, where does that meet everything? There's also a recent article that was published in 2023 by actually the current PSYOP president, Society of Biopsychology president, and her her colleague uh, Landers, called Auditing the AI Auditors, a Framework for Evaluating Fairness and Bias in High Stakes AI Predictive Models. So organizations are using AI in some high stakes situations. When we talk about high stakes, it's generally described as hiring, firing and promotions, right? So if you think of that as a high stakes thing and you're thinking about the ethics of that, there's a lot of implications, you know, people can people will automatically go straight, to, you know, for the jugular if it has something to do with their potential and their future potential in a workforce. This particular article talks about the use of high complexity predictive models and, and using that, it says, much like statistical or traditional statistical approaches, these models are being used to identify patterns in existing data to predict people's futures to make decisions about them. The growing capabilities and popularity of AI has increased concerns about how exactly such predictions are generated and whether the use of these predictions has unintended consequences. These concerns are exacerbated by the fact that as the complexity of the models increases, transparency typically decreases, which is opposite of what we want to happen. Right. And it can be difficult to determine exactly how some models generate their predictions. That paragraph I just read screams ethics in so many ways. So I'm excited to hear how the conversation goes. Very relevant and current topic. Would love to hear some very uh, real examples of maybe what people are seeing and hearing about. We'll see how it goes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Martha's here, so let's go to you.
3: I think we need to
4: remember two things. Anytime we talk about technology of any sort or AI, whatever the topic is, there are two things to consider that come into play. Those who design the technology in question and then those who use it, right? Because you can use a knife to butter your toast or to slit someone's throat, so What are we talking about here? It's all about what humanity does with a tool, right? You can use so many things for so many different reasons, for good or for bad. So I think rather than focusing simply on the potential of misuse or unethical use of AI, we need to look at human behavior. Just because you gained a knife doesn't mean that you should run around cutting people, right? So now that you have a new tool or a new technology, think about when working remotely became available for the first time or easily available. All of a sudden... There was this idea of how convenient and how fabulous, and this is such progress. It went from that to this is an electronic leash on people who can't disconnect from work. And now they're expected to answer emails on nights, weekends, vacations, holidays, right? So it goes back to human behavior. We really have to start watching how we're using technologies, how we're applying AI, And then the idea of patterns, when we look at human behavior, generally speaking, previous behaviors are a good indicator of future behaviors. That's where patterns come in. However, we can't forget what I would like to call the human factor, that people are capable of change. So if we leave AI in charge of recognizing patterns and make a decision solely on an identified pattern, then we are missing out on the biggest responsibility of considering that human for who he or she is. We are more than just patterns of behavior, right? So there's much more to it than that. So again, we have to take on the responsibility. We really do, because it's so easy to point fingers and, you know, have protests and, picketing and whatever, but it all comes down to the choices that every one of us makes in terms of how to use whatever it is that we're discussing.
2: Uh, let me ask you are, you, are in that context, are you following your own initiative today, or is there someone else that you're looking to that, that you think has got it right?
4: Well, I think that <clears throat> generally speaking, at the end of the day, humanity needs a general rule, because while most people do the right thing, not everybody does the right thing. And that's where the need for some kind of a law or restriction or, or guideline or whatever it is, is required.
2: Um, Dr. Ariana, let's go to you. I'm going to come back to this, but Dr. Ariana, let's go mm-hmm. to you.
5: No, Tom. Yeah. I think that what you're saying is very relevant and uh, similar to what I was going to say, which is Now that we have these new tools, I think it's great that we're starting these conversations. And I think that's where this needs to begin is what are we comfortable with? We should outline what our fears are, come together as organizations. And if organizations are going to start adopting AI, which most or many are at a rapid speed, Trying to align on how is it that we want to leverage this technology? What are our objectives? What are the benefits? But also, what are the risk areas? And how are we, as an organizational community, going to use this in a healthy way? And related to that, but a little different, is also, you know, hoping and encouraging tech providers that are developing these tools to have ethics in mind as well. I'm I'm a little worried about this space because I've seen in some recent layoffs That sometimes at tech companies, that when things get tight, that they'll cut the ethics department, you know, or not the ethics department, but perhaps the experts that were hired to be ethics advisors. And as we are looking at a potential recession, and you know, a lot of us looking at inflation and all of those economic factors impacting our workplace, I hope that we can continue to invest in ethics because it's not just on the sidelines; it impacts all of our functioning with these tools that are being used. And I hope with that, I'd love to hear from the group how we could maybe even preventively correct things. So one example is we're seeing some bias from AI and thinking that nurses are women and doctors are men or other biases emerging. So, okay, we know that this is a problem in society right now, but is there a way that we could correct our software? And obviously I'm not an expert in this, but to be less gender biased, less racially biased, any of those things. Um, and it's similarly happening in the DEI space where, you know, we've gone and wanted all these new initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We know the benefits and we know the ROI. And yet we're seeing that those departments are often or can be cut in things like layoffs. So I think that it's just looking at what we value, what our shared agreements are and how we continue to invest in these areas.
6: Linda Ann, let's go to you. Yeah, I think the challenge that we have with all of the the new innovation that's coming on, you know, coming out with us, is that we can only create parameters for things that we currently understand, right? And we don't understand the full scope of capabilities. And so when you're creating, you know, ethical standards or guidelines, like I, I recently did within the last few weeks, did a handbook for a company. And I included um, an AI policy in that, you know, uh, because it's so critical for outlining that currently for employers in how employees might use it to be more efficient, but you have to, you know, what are the guidelines for being transparent about your that with your clients and so forth. So, but, so I think some of the And and that's the challenge with technology anyway. We're so far behind in our legislation. It takes so long to catch up that it's a real challenge. And we have to look at how we're wording some of that so that, you know, you're using terms like ethically responsible and that might change what that means might change over time. Um, But yeah, I think that that's the real challenge that we have is we don't even understand the full scope of what we're trying to regulate.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Nick, let's go to you.
7: Yeah, it's an interesting space, especially when you have to consider both the the development side and the usage side. Um, I think that there are tech companies that either want to or are going to be forced to have to put sort of guardrails on it. Uh, But my understanding of machine learning is very limited, Uh, but it's gathering all this mass amount of data. And so it's identifying trends. And so we have to look at, okay, are they putting all the data in? Are they putting in a picture of reality rather than the ideal that we would hope to get to where the biases are removed and things like that? Or is it, is it looking back to make predictions um, in the data that it has access to? You know, the idea that women are nurses, men are doctors that didn't, that's not always the case, but that didn't come from nowhere. um, Is kind of that tension that we have to to hold ourselves in. Um, And I think based on a conversation that I had in Seattle last year, um, it was brief, but kind of the the idea that maybe IO didn't grab a chair, a seat at the table quick enough with some of this uh, AI, um, and now we're playing catch up. And so some of these things got running without that voice of well, what about organizations? What about bias? What about fairness? Um, and they just wanted to make a project, a product that did what it said it did. It picks the right employee. It matches the right thing. Um, you know, and if that's the only consequence they're looking at. Uh, They may or may not have had that voice of those second and third order unintended consequences. And unlike what I had to do in math class in high school, these machines don't show their work. They just adapt, adopt, and move on. And so we don't see how they got from A to X. Um, And that's the transparency part that I think so many people are, are clamoring for. If we can see where it started to go off the rails, and it's going to be just that incremental little shift every time, uh, perhaps we can we can uh, choose different paths and and allow it to program in different ways.
8: Uh, Aaron, let's go to you. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so, in preparation for this, I was looking at a, a couple papers. I actually still have articles that are open up right now, but they post quite a few different things I wanted to touch on. First and foremost, Dr. Martha mentioned earlier, like the difference between the general ethical code and then the individual uh, application of such. And that that was the very first thing I thought of from last week, sitting and thinking, you know, we talked about, hey, who's going to be the expert talking about it? And we gave some examples of like business leaders. And I thought, uh, you know, we've got ethics, and then we have morals. And that's what Dr. Martha touched on is definitely considering, okay, we have a generalized ethical baseline, but then we have the individual applications of it. And that leads me to think, well, I think that the ethical code is not going to be one size fits all. The basic one is going to be just that basic. And then you'll have to look at the application of the AI and have separate ethics almost for it, such as if I get an AI that looks for a hiring, then we need to make sure that there's ethics around bias, age groups, et cetera, as we touched on. But then if I have an AI that, I don't know, just pulling this out of thing there, like uh just tracks if you're in the office more often than not, something like that, right? then it'll be significantly less intrusive, theoretically. It'll just track if you're walking through the door and then if you walk out, something like that. And so the ethics will shift also based on the intent. But it's definitely, I think at this stage, we just need something. But understanding that this is a prototype ethical code, it's not one size fits all. It's a step in the right direction. Second, we talked a little bit about the researchers creating AI and then the practitioners. Well, as individuals in IO psychology, we're very familiar with the researcher practitioner gap. And so understanding that the role that IO psychologist or any ethical expert can fill is understanding, okay, we have all these amazing tools like Dr. Martha was talking about. Okay, you've got this array of knives, how are you gonna use them? Some are steak knives, some are cooking knives, some are defense knives. And so it's understanding, well, How do we get that training? How do we learn? How do we know what is applied here? Where's that practitioner and researcher gap as new shiny things come out? Do we as a business need that? Finally, I believe it was Ms. Ariana that had mentioned a question about preventative measures. And I think we touched on it also a little bit um, a couple of speakers ago. I'm sorry, it's a lot of information coming through, but it was about AI. Like AI is honest. It will show you bias. It will come up with things of, oh, wait, the AI is honest. It's coming up with the result we're asking it for. And if we're coming up with biased answers, that reveals something to us as humans that gives us a creative data point to say, oh, we can change this as a society. Now, a new problem is brought to our attention because AI is honest. AI is not going to lie to us at this stage, right? Because we still have that fear in the future, but it's not going to lie at this stage of, oh, if I ask you, hey, what are the five best ways to uh, validate somebody when you listen? It's like, oh, well, here's the things that research says. Okay. Oh, you know, point three and 5 actually don't sound all that good, I wonder if that's actually validating. And then you think, okay, that leads to a new um, search, basically, and gives us new information.
2: Isn't there a fear, though, that if the AI is giving me the information, that if it supports my already existing beliefs, I'm not going to actually question the validity of it?
8: Oh, 100%. Confirmation bias is something we've been dealing with forever. And so I think that comes back to ethics versus morals is, we as human beings still have to be willing to challenge ourselves. I think a lot of people see AI and they think of like the movie WALL-E, where we're all just in chairs and we're being fed food and we're just lazy sitting around. But the human desire to grow and improve is always going to be there. That's why we move forward as a species. That's why we move forward as humanity. And so it's having that braveness to think, okay, I still have to think critically. That's what we're seeing right now with the internet. You still have to think critically, even if there's that confirmation bias. And so maybe that's a whole separate topic of, hey, in schools, are we properly teaching critical thinking skills? Because I didn't learn them until college. That's when they were like, okay, let's really look at this. So that gives a large chunk. A lot
2: of people don't go to college. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So there's a societal
8: gap as well.
2: Yeah, Rich, over to you
9: morning everyone um I, my thoughts actually come from i belong to a couple of different associations um uh SHRM, of course uh and and then there's siap and then uh there's um the uh, institute of management consultants and each one of those has a um an ethical you know a, a set of ethical guidelines and a big part of that that's I just I just looked at all three of them, I'm happy to share them in the chat, but you know, a big part of that is working within your competencies, right? And one of the things in the consulting world that I'm seeing a ton of is I'm an expert in chat GPT, I'm an expert in BART, I'm an expert in whatever that that is, right? And so is do we have the scientific uh is there is there is there the body of knowledge the research and all that to really support whether or not you are you can really act within that that competency um you know and say that you know oh, i'm an expert in but you know um and and i think that's that's important to to keep in mind when you're you know when you're working with ai is um you know working collaboratively with people who have experience you know, um, and, and then you know, just having that that mindset of uh, that growth mindset of you know uh, uh, adding to your KSAOs, you know, to to really you know develop yourself before you to go and try to develop others. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it certainly does. But it's you're right; it's so easy to brand yourself as an expert now in just about anything. Um, Brendan, let's go to you.
10: So, I know Linda Ann was touching on this, and I know Dr. Martha was talking about it uh, last week. And then, Tom, I don't mean to throw you under the bus um, with your comment on the government needs to be the one regulating this because it's absolutely frightening that that was ever even a thought that went through your head. But uh, I'll let you, I'll give you a pass on that one. Um, but within the concept of this, is that public policy is not going to be what drives this forward. Public policy is usually a bare minimum that is like, uh, allows for loopholes for somebody to get through things, and people always find those loopholes. Uh, I see AI as being something that it's obviously vulnerable to that as well. Um, but private sector is really going to be what drives this forward. It's the same thing with innovations. I hear, I know we have a lot of military on here. I have a lot of military uh, friends, and I'm very thankful for them. But they tell me a lot of what happens in uh, overseas is that yes, the military is there, but when things start to go a certain way. Um, to avoid politics, it gets contracted private to actually move things forward. So I believe that's going to be kind of the same situation with AI. Um, and, and it's funny to me, it's that the private is actually what's going to be make it the most ethical. It's not the public. So those are my comments on that.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> we could have a very good conversation. But Dr. Martha, let's go to you. <laughs>
4: I want to go back to something that Aaron said when he called AI honest. I want to caution everybody about the words we choose. Honesty, the opposite of honesty is dishonesty. That implies some kind of choice making. Will I be honest with this person or not? So by calling AI honest, we are assigning to it some kind of ethical moral code that it's making a decision of whether or not to be honest. Whereas if you think about what we have here is a collection of, let's call them facts of what's out there. And we have this technology that collects it much faster than we could and presents it. So if AI existed during the time when most people believe that the earth was flat. It would honestly report that the earth is flat, right? So there is nothing honest or dishonest about AI. It's not a human being that can make a, an ethical or a moral decision. So I caution us about this because I think Words are so important because they are so powerful. And we see this in advertising all the time. Use a word over and over and over again, and people accept it as factual. People accept it as absolute truth. So if we start calling AI with descriptors that really apply to thinking beings that have morality and ethics, we're going to set ourselves up for being blind sheep that just follow something or someone right into the slaughterhouse. So we have to be very careful with our choice of words. AI is not honest because AI is not dishonest, right? It just is. It reports what it finds out there. And if the things it finds out there are correct, then that's what it reports. If they're not correct, it's still what it reports. It's, it's the same thing. It didn't make a call. I'm going to lie about this. I'm going to skew the the the, the findings. I'm going to try to convince you of, of this or that. Or I'm a good little honest AI. It didn't have that monologue in its head. So let's be very careful with the words we use so that we don't set ourselves up for failure down the road.
6: Well said, uh, Linda Ann. Let's go to you. Yeah, my comment both um, builds on on what Doctor uh, uh, Martha had to say, which is a, a very uh, critical point to make, and then also what Aaron had come to say as well, and that is, um, the we still need to realize that that AI is just a tool. And when we're looking at the result of that, we need that human critical evaluation of what it's feeding us. and it yeah, it can speed up things enormously, but it's still a tool that we need to use. It's us who needs to be ethical in the way that we use it. Right, it's not the the system um, that can give that ethical standard to it because it can't. Like as Dr. Martha was saying, it can't make those critical, nuanced decisions based on you know our moral standings or whatever. So it's it's we still need to perceive it at this point anyway as just a tool that we use and can be integrated in our processes, but it doesn't replace us or the way that that the world is going to function on a macro level.
2: Yeah, agreed. I, I'm just not sure I trust all the people who may use it. Um, <laughs> Nick, let's go to you.
7: Tom, you do seem to have some trust issues, it would seem. Um, as far as just kind of looking at it, um, yeah, I think Dr. Martha's point is spot on. Like The the AI doesn't, doesn't have a consciousness. It doesn't have that other rubric that we run things through. So the, absolutely being careful about, you know, what what we're saying about it and and what we're saying to it, even to a degree, I think that kind of goes back to to what I said earlier. It's it's more of a mirror that's that's looking at the way things are, and we need to find ways to have these decision making tools help us shift to the way that we want it to be. Um, and that is only going to happen with with human interaction because data is data, and data tends not to um, be the the, the most Caring, feeling thing in the face of the planet. When you when you look at the facts, they're the facts, and we all react to them. I mean, I I can think of several times that there's no subtext in text. You know, you get a line of text, even from you know uh, a spouse or friend, and you put your own intonation on it, and you have a, a, a reaction to it, and that's how you take it. And so I think that that's very much a similar phenomenon with you know with AI. Oh well, ChatGPT told me, well, this is the way it is, or you know, it's a stellar cover letter and somebody should should hire it, uh, hire me for it, even though I didn't exactly write it. Um, again, I think that some of those uses that you hear about where people are trying to automate, trying to get ahead, they're not unethical to begin with. You know, I need help writing a cover letter. You can go to an expert or you can go to this you know, website and see if you can save you know two hours of your life for something that may or may not be read. Entirely separate topics there. Um but you know, the people who don't stop and think about, well, how do I make it my own? How do I, I take this general form and, and put myself into it um, are really not using the tool uh, to its full advantage. I mean, you can save time editing if you say, okay, what do you think of this? And then it'll spit something new out. And then you take that and, and wind it up into the next generation. Um, I think using it as a tool like that is absolutely ethical. Trying to take you know every shortcut in the book, that's that's where we start stepping into that gray area. Um, as users um and i think there's you know some of that individual organizational dynamic that happens there well the big company has all these big tools they're doing it to me why can't i do the same to them
2: yeah and and round and round we go <laughs> uh Carly, welcome to work cookie uh, unmute your mic and share your thoughts with us
11: hi thanks tom yeah i uh wanted to touch on um well i feel like you guys have already kind of been saying it really well but our role as Iowa practitioners at the end of the day it's you're, you know, our focus is on people. We care about people. Why do we do what we do because we love people? And so, um, you know, Linda you were you were talking about this too, but I think using our voice to remind people to engage in conversations with other people about AI and to remind, you know, just to keep people at the focus of it because with AI, I mean, with any technology, we can get distracted by the fact that we're looking at a screen or we're typing words, and Nick, you touched on this too. It can it can be impersonal. You can interpret it in different ways, and um, this is where I think the level of danger comes in because you forget about the other per- the person on the other side uh, or um, utilizing AI to you know, do something that might potentially hurt someone else. I'm kind of thinking like the dark side of AI, I guess here. <laughs> but um, you know, I think we need to be loud in, in the sense of promoting AI as a, as a tool, like Nick was saying, to help people. And um, man, we don't even know, like everyone has been saying, we don't know what this tool is capable of doing, what the good that it's capable of doing, but also the destruction that it's capable of doing. Dr. Martha, you, I, I came in when you were talking about the knives <laughs> and yielding, you know, each weapon accordingly to the, desi- you know, the desired outcome. And so I think that there will never be a day where we don't need human interaction and we don't need to develop skills like listening and interpersonal uh interpersonal skills. So I think that that is definitely something that we need to lean into as iop practitioners with ai being I mean coming in and sweeping in and just building communities, having conversation with people and reminding ourselves why we do what we do and then instilling that value in others as well.
2: Yeah, I think there's tremendous possibility for AI to really change the world positively. I'm just not sure the people in control of it (laughs) are that ethical. Um, Aaron, let's go to you.
8: Yeah, um, honestly, what Kara Lee said was beautiful. I mean, the human touch is definitely always going to be there, and that's what we need to lean on. And of course, noting that critical piece that AI is a tool, as Dr. Martha mentioned. I love the the challenge that comes in the panel because, yeah, thanks for keeping me honest, right? Brought the word back. Because AI, right, isn't honest. It's maybe the word is straightforward, something more in line with what I was wanting. It just spits out facts. Yeah. But rather than a statement, I wanted to repose a, a question that came up when Nick was talking about, yeah, AI doesn't show its work. And we've talked a lot about transparency and the human aspect of, okay, we have the human variable and this is what we have to lean on. I'm curious, are there ways to put in transparency? Not like all or nothing, like 100% transparency. Obviously, that's not going to be built in, but what are some ways to create um, or rather to minimize the human variable in AI output? right? So it's like, okay, here's kind of some of that shown work. Here's at least a little bit so you can get to the heart of the matter. What are some ways that maybe we as practitioners can help drive those type of ethical, maybe stop gaps in using it? Some thoughts to have. And I just want to pose that to the group. You're listening to Work
1: Cookie,
0: a CBOC
1: podcast. We'll
0: be right back after
1: this break. Please subscribe to the podcast because it helps us out and it helps the field of I/O and. If you are in or getting into the industrial organizational psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking for support to jumpstart your career, blaze your IO path, and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO career pathfinder membership at CBOC.com. If you're a more established IO practitioner, check out our expert membership to showcase your expertise, build your brand, and be part of our initiatives. Do you lead a university's I.O. or applied I.O. psychology program? Go to cblock.com, get in touch to partner with us to build your program's brand and get solid, real-world support for your students. Let us do the heavy lifting for their engagement and experiences. And businesses, get in touch. We've got the bank of experts you need for coaching, consultation, and program development and execution.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Work Cookie, a Seabok podcast.
2: Well, Dr. Oriana, let's go to you. Maybe maybe you have some solutions.
5: I'm not sure if I have solutions, but building on what Carolee and Aaron said, I think that that's a really good perspective for us to have as we consider AI, is us as practitioners using these tools. So in a past role, I've been the one responsible we're vetting all of our inventory of personality assessments. We're a consulting firm. We use a host of assessments. Well, I'm the one in charge of going in and reading the validity and reliability report and making that IO assessment around whether or not this is the tool that we should be using for leadership development, for growth, for selection even. So I think if we can apply that same logic to who we are as IOs in evaluating AI, that's a good approach to have leverage our critical thinking and asking people in the prospecting phase, have you considered this? What extent have you seen adverse impact? How have you seen bias emerge? And our role might be to help source the tools that are good, to raise the expectations for people wanting to sell these tools to us. Obviously, we'll be using AI likely in our own ways. But I think continuing to maintain standards as ourselves as professionals could be a good starting place. And then we can always give feedback as well. So if we're seeing these challenges, give back that feedback, support tools for their improvement.
7: Nick, over to you. Yeah, to, to touch a little bit on, on Aaron's question, you talk about ethics and you know transparency feels like the first, you know, sort of end all be all. But I, I would play devil's advocate to a touch just to say software companies, their livelihood is their code. And if you're exposing that code, now you're exposing proprietary secrets. So what is their ability to turn a profit and, you know, make money off of these things? Uh, where does that balance with the public good of, are, are these machines learning the right or wrong things um, as far as it goes? And just even thinking, you know, AI and hiring, I feel like is is kind of the the foot the door for, for most of it, and um, application selection um the the video interviews and just you know blind reading of of resumes you know everybody wants to say well the machines aren't fair you know but they they might be just presenting the facts and you might have gotten beat out by somebody who was more qualified but it is so easy to blame a machine and you get the the standard email and go oh well it was wasn't reviewed by human eyes um and so i think organizations have to look how they do apply it, they're they're using it to speed things up, they're using it to to take some of the the thought strain off of people so they can make those higher order decisions. So intention is good, practice, you know, we've yet to see, um, but adding that human element to say, based on what was reviewed here, uh, we've decided not to to do that. Again, that's a a touch of transparency um, and a human touch that from my experience uh, over the last year is not always present in hiring. Um, and it's not there with humans, so why do we think it's going to be there with with the machines as well? Dr. Martha,
4: I think it's so important what Carol Lee said about the importance of having this conversation. And as I'm listening to us talk, it seems like humanity this this is this is true for humanity throughout our existence, throughout history. Anytime we face something new, we need to have this conversation. So today we're talking about AI, but in my mind, I'm picturing some cavemen or is it cave people? I don't know, um, but I'm picturing some cavemen and maybe one of them took a rock and smashed a walnut and got at the tasty treat inside and Eureka, we have this new tool that we can get at the walnut and it's so nice. And then some other cavemen, Hit another guy over the head with a rock, and the conversation was needed to be had, right? So, think about it. I make a little joke about it, but this is a reality for humans. Every time we face something new that we don't know what to do with it and how we're going to behave with it and how it's going to affect us and how the people whose ethics may be questionable will use it, the conversation needs to be had. So, that that just struck me as such an important thing to say from Carolee, because if we stop having conversations at any time in our history, we're doomed. We absolutely have to continue to have these conversations. So millions of years ago, it was about the rock. Today, it's about AI. And couple of years from now it's going to be about something else. But the conversations have to continue. This is why we need people. This is why we need to be connected. This is why we need IOs, right? We have to continue those conversations. So I love that point. That was brilliant.
2: Do you think we're in jeopardy today? Because we do, we have seemed to have lost our ability to have even the simple conversations, let alone the the difficult ones. So is 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 maybe that something that we have to really seriously look at and and just how do we talk to each other
4: once again? You know, it's it's kind of a two-sided answer for me. Because on one side, I think, yes, people are so sensitive over everything. You can't say a thing. You can't say anything, right? And we live in this so happy society on top of it. And then you throw in social media into it. And it, it's just a big mess. So on one side, I say, yes, we really need to learn how to talk to each other and make it safe to speak up and have actual conversations. But on the other side of that is, doesn't it seem like every single generation says something to the effect of the world is going to hell in a a handbasket and it used to be so much better, but then every generation says that. So which one is it? I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. But I think there's some truth to both sides.
2: Yeah, I remember uh, years ago reading a report from a teacher about how uncontrolled this student was and how this generation is just going to lead us in the wrong direction. And it was from someone in 500 B.C. Uh, So, yeah, things change really slowly. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you.
6: Yeah, I want to... uh... Thank Dr. Martha for that graphic metaphor on the rock. It was so clear. <laughs> um, I want, so, but one thing that I wanted to bring up was because this was one of the initial things when I started using ChatGPT and so forth. Is who owns that data? Who owns that information? What's the intellectual property ethics on that go along with that? And what are the requirements? And for copywriting, uh, it has to have a human. Derivative. You have to it has to be a derivative of a human work in order for it to be copyrighted. So anything that's coming out of AI can't be copyrighted. And there's some ethical things about the intellectual property of it when it depends on how much of it comes from exactly some other work or or source. But yet the chat like chat gpt isn't providing you with an accurate source so how much time is someone actually spending to find the actual source on that when it's where it gets kind of really fuzzy and and questionable and so i think that um because all companies have some kind of uh policy on or whatever on you know intellectual property and and things like that and we really need to be uh understand what we're saying when we're talking about that and who owns what and where it comes from
7: well thank you for that nick let's go over to you yeah it's a a lot of things we talk about you know everybody's very hypersensitive and focused on on me and what i can do and what i can show off on social media and we're talking about big societal conversations that ultimately do have to be had between individuals and i think that ultimately takes very much grassroots sort of you know what are, you, what are you saying to your family? How are you going to conduct yourself in, in your own home? What are you saying to your coworkers workers and, and that sphere of influence that you have? Really, A, coming up with how you understand it and how it should be used or, or what your your personal code of conduct would, could, or should be. Um, and then you know putting that out in the public space, be it shouting at the void through Twitter or just the conversations you have in your neighborhood, um, and finding where these things are happening, and and maybe even finding the contrarian opinion, because I'm sure just as we're sitting here going, we have to protect the people, we have to protect the human element. Uh, there's all these unintended consequences. Um, you know, there's probably programmers going, we can get this to make better, clearer decisions make based on the based on the data. They're trying to sharpen the tool. And we're trying to say, well, where are we waving it around? And so to be in those spaces, to be in those other societies um, and get that crosstalk going, because I'm sure there are several thousand points that somebody else is making that if we heard it, we could take and run with it. And that's the same with any or other sort of public discourse. But I think not shying away from it, not assuming it is this, this godsend, but also not running away with it because it's not going anywhere. I mean, this this is already this train's already moving. Uh, and there's so many people running to try and catch it. Um, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Aaron, over to
8: you. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to piggyback off what Nick said of find those contrarian opinions, really start to discuss this and lean into the discomfort. I uh, think back to the reputation management a couple sessions ago where I said, Hey, yeah, surround yourself with people that are willing to say, Hey, you got bad breath. And I'm about to get on like a a slippery slope for me. So stop me if I start to ramble, but it makes me think when Dr. Martha was talking about, yeah, it's a thematic societal, just, it's something that happens, a pattern of seeing like, oh, blaming the older generation or the younger generation, there's changes, there's all this newness, but every generation comes with their own growth, their own journeys, etc. And I sat here and I think, as we're talking about ethics and, and we apply it to the machine ethics, and then we think about how we're going to use it ethics, and we think of the cultural and societal ethical, like, statement, or, um, what's the word? Like, feeling the vibes, so to speak, for lack of a better word, word. But I also think. When we were talking about that, like, hey, how are you going to use it? How are you are you advocating for it? And it makes me think of like shadow work, accepting your own flaws, your own shortcomings, your own dysfunctional habits, and thinking, well, you know, it's easy for me to look outward and say, well, the machines is is going to cause all the issues. Well, maybe it's how you use it. Are you an advocate? Are you surrounding yourself with people that are challenging your view so that you can grow? And it makes me think of this uh, concept. Um, I'm just pulling it up in my head. I don't know the source, unfortunately, but it's basically was talking about, we talk about VUCA, V-U-C-A, the volatility, uncertainty, uh, ambiguity, and then C, but (laughs) it's basically saying humans need to evolve themselves in order to deal with more complex situations Just talking about how if you get from a manager into a leader, we talked a little bit about of you move from transactional, what's the problem and how do I solve it to, yeah, I'm navigating a lot of gray here, which is why coaches or IO practitioners close that gap with individuals. So with AI, the same thing needs to happen is you need to grow yourself individually of, okay, am I speaking out against how this is being used? Am I critically thinking about how this is you know, applying and where are the bias is, et cetera. How can I plug myself in the positive way instead of just looking out where that, okay, I'm scared of this. Let's keep it away from me. Cause it's here to stay. And uh, Rich went ahead and pulled it up. Thank you. The C in VUCA is complexity. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, let me ask you this, Aaron, because what I'm hearing from, from right across the panel is, a, you know, a lot of bit of trust and, and, you know, we, we've got to look at different sources, but I'm a, big fan, I love watching American political news. It's the best reality TV show out there. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But what I'm seeing is that, you know, most people don't watch various networks. They tune into one single network that confirms their bias Mm -hmm. and that's what they go with. They're not actually interested in tuning into other channels. So how do we move society forward and get people thinking critically?
8: I think first and foremost, it's simple, but it's extremely difficult. It's straightforward, it's well, you expose yourself to more difficult situations. Like get comfortable with discomfort. As a coach, leading people to push into discomfort is my job. And it's hard. It's difficult. People don't want to change. Human beings seek comfort. They seek that confirmation bias. And it's on the the duty of the individual to decide, I want to change. I want to grow. And so when you talk about politics, I actually use that as an example a lot because I have friends all over the aisle Because particularly the book uh, Think Again by Adam Grant was something that I absolutely loved. And it brought the topic of let's talk about values rather than talk about content, because we all want our kids to be safe. We all want to not be surrounded by people that are, you know, causing us issues or for lack of a better term, we don't want to be surrounded by idiots right? And so we sit there and we all want the same thing. It's just how we're going to navigate it. And when we understand we're all all looking in the same direction of, hey, AI is kind of scary. We need to make sure that we're all doing the right thing. What is the right thing to you? And what's the right thing to me? Let's talk about that. That's the focus of the conversation. And so I would say in order to lean into that discomfort, that's the first step. But in order to do that, know the values that you're bringing to the table. What is actually happening behind the scenes in your head and in your heart, most importantly, that's driving you to take this stance. And then you can have friends of all sorts of different opinions. And there's how you get that um, controversial opinion or um, dif- discussions of contention where you have different opinions and are able to, you know, agree to disagree in some cases.
2: Well, let me ask you, because I'm, you know, as an actor, these are the kind of things I'm always fascinated with where, you know, I absolutely agree with you. We are all it doesn't matter where you sit politically. We have so much more in common than we do that differentiates us, but we seem to focus on the difference. Is is that media that's driving us into that direction? Because it's the differences which can be more sensationalized and that gives them higher ratings.
8: I don't think that that's a simple enough question to answer. I feel like that would be a whole nother topic for another one hour discussion, honestly. To give a very short um, answer though, I think it comes from our own stories. You know, I think you think of Brene Brown talking about shame and it's during her research. It's, uh, I believe it's that 20 minute TED talk, the power of vulnerability on YouTube. And she has a, a phrase where she says, you know, I ask people about love. They told me about heartbreak. So it's easy to relate to things from a place of pain because it's a more acute emotion. And that leads us to relate. I think contrast creates that reference point.
2: You know, it's it's always fascinated me working with young actors and working on their emotional range. It's much easier for them to access those left hand notes, the anger, the sadness, than to express joy. It's so strange to me. Um, but that seems to be the world we're living in. Uh, Carolee, let's go to you.
11: Yeah, you guys are saying great things. I, I love this. A um, few things that I wanted to, to know is just coming back to the importance of community, putting like... Erin, you were saying how it's really important to be intentional about putting ourselves into situations and conversations with people that think differently than us. But I think it's also important to um, acknowledge when conflict is present and to work, like, I'm not even thinking like differences of opinion. I'm thinking maybe even, you know, just interpersonal conflict, someone someone hurt you and conflict management and conflict resolution, man, you, you would think that with how, how much we've studied it as a human race that we would be amazing at it right now (laughs) by now, but we're not. And so us as IO practitioners, um, checking ourselves and making sure that we are, we have good conflict resolution skills in our, I mean, in our workplace with our, um, you know, with our partners, with our friends in our community, I'm such a big proponent of community. And I, I think that we could, I mean, maybe this is my eternal optimism here, but I'm like, we can change the world one community at a time. Nick, you mentioned our circle of influence. We each have a circle of influence and um, within our communities. And I think if we really understand that we can be change agents within that, and then we can um, invest in those interpersonal relationships around us and help people feel human. And I think creating, like Aaron, you're saying as a coach, you you help people navigate this. And I think that... We as IO practitioners, as humans, as, you know, reputa- repu- reputable people of society, <laughs> we can create these safe spaces for um, people to have conversations about conflict. Let let your friends know, hey, if there's ever anything that I do to hurt you, I know you can come to me and you can you can call me out on it. And man, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing more, I think, freeing and just, you um, I don't know. It's just it, it brings you there's a closeness that happens when you're able to talk with a friend about something that they did that hurt you and they're able to receive it, or vice versa, when they're able to come to you and say, you hurt me, and then you guys are able to have a conversation about it. And so this relates to our conversation about AI because there's going to be so many different feelings, emotions, opinions, things that happen with this tool. And um, you know, just making sure that we check ourselves first, that we're able to engage in these, these hard conversations. And uh, not be easily offended, having an unoffendable heart, if you will.
2: I like that idea. Uh, Nick, let's go to you.
7: A couple of things. I mean, I think we've we've all kind of touched on the idea of whether it's AI, whether it's the personal computer, whether it's the printing press, whether it's a cave painting. There are these upheavals that that seem to happen, and you know, it's it's global. If the if the Earth is an organization, it's global organizational change uh, as these things come along. And there's there's good, there's bad, there's otherwise. That go with it. And I think, you know, we're talking about some of the divisiveness that we see where people get into their groove and they they follow the one network or the one source and it confirms what they're doing. Um I think that's, you know, that's an unintended consequence of television and things like that. And it's taken, you know, 50, 70 years to really see that, you know, you see the ugliness of that, but then you can see, you know, the, the moments in history where everybody's glued to their TV to see what's happening and how that can still bring us together as well. Um, the analogy that's always stuck with me. And you know, as we talk about uh, differences with among people, everybody's like, well, we're so similar. Why, why is all the noise there? Um, I take it to, to musical terms. If you're tuning against somebody else, like two players are trying to get in tune with each other. If they're miles apart, it sounds bad, but it doesn't hurt. The closer they get to being in tune, the worse it sounds. And you're also at that point where you're making minor adjustments. And so it's that much harder to get that last, you know, last half note, quarter note, whatever, um, you know, term would be appropriate there. And I think that's, that's what we see all the time. We forget the commonality and we forget that we're even trying to hit the same note from time to time. So if we're talking about those values um, then yeah. Okay. I want my kids to be safe. Great. So do I. Well, how do we do that? Well, you know, we arm teachers to the teeth. No, we take away the danger. And and that's where those conversations are at. And too often we hear the noise and not the, the common goal. And I, I hope that, you know, maybe AI simplifies some of the, you know, the researching or the the getting the source material in front of everybody um, so that they're asking questions and they're getting reliable information. And that automates that portion of it. So we can get to that higher level discussion. You know, if we we have something that's disseminating policy in our state, okay, here's what lawmakers are doing. Now I can get involved and I can can take how I feel uh, and have hopefully an educated discussion on it. And
2: Dr. Martha, back to you.
4: Tom, you brought up the idea of critical thinking, which is so important when we're facing new things, new technologies. In this case, we're talking about AI ethics. But if you consider critical thinking, There are so many variables that come into play here. It starts, funny enough, at the beginning. When a a person is born into this world, there are so many influences that can either make them into a critical thinker or swing them in the other direction. And prevent that or even punish critical thinking. So think about your schooling. Aaron said he didn't learn critical thinking until he was in college. What about those people who don't go to college, right? Was your school one that wanted you to conform to the program and color within the lines or were they encouraging you to think critically? What about your family? Well, if you were born to parents who are not critical thinkers, how likely is it that they're going to raise a critical thinker? What about your society? What about your church? What about your government? Historically speaking, from an institution's point of view, critical thinkers are troublemakers. Think about from a historical point of view, how many critical thinkers were burned at the stake or otherwise made into pariahs or um, imprisoned or whatever the case Maybe. So to us, critical thinking, everybody should do it. It's the best thing since sliced bread. Yes. But when we look at humanity as a whole, there are so many things that come into play. It's no wonder that hardly anybody thinks anymore, much less thinks critically. So this is a very important part of the conversation because as we are faced with new and more complex new things, right? Moving away from the rock. And now we're talking AI. We really need that critical thinking because every person needs to be able to assess for themselves what they're working with, what they're looking at, and what the potential ethical implications are. See,
2: we agree most of the time. (laughs) Linnea, let's go to you.
6: (laughs) I'm, I'm reflecting on a, something that someone told me the other day about having, um, so many rules that nobody is even willing to, to, um, deal with it. And, and, and something that I applied when I was a, a school teacher, you know, there was always about what are classroom rules, you know, and the kids would make all the whatever. I only had one. And I, and I think in the case of AI, it may be, um, a situation and this, I'm a, open to debate on this, but um, maybe a little bit of less might be more. For example, the rule I had in my classroom was you were not allowed to interfere with someone else's right to learn, right? That was the only rule. And that covered so much, um, but it was easy to understand. And so I think that something like that might be a better path to take in when we're talking about something that's as complex and as evolving as AI and, and some other things?
2: Uh, well, Dr. Destiny, this hour has flown by, it felt like about five minutes uh, because this is a fascinating conversation. And and and, and while I can't say I feel a lot better about the future with AI, it does make me feel good to know that there are IO psychologists out there <laughs> who could actually lead us to a better future. Um, So how did we do today?
3: I mean, I don't think I've laughed that hard during one of these. Um, Off to the side here, uh, I loved all the analogies and the visualizations, especially for those of us who are visual learners and communicators. So really enjoyed that. But we got to the core of a lot of the things that we're all thinking about, but not really sometimes able to kind of put words or frameworks around to kind of communicate that, and that's interesting because that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of AI here, right? Is like how do we create those guidelines and frameworks around something that is just really hard to conceptualize, and you know, I I think something to consider too, like. You know, if we just look at through like a frame of automation, um, think about all the things that have been automated in our lives that have made it a lot easier and made things more productive and all of these. I found some interesting uh, research that said that O-Net data to show that um, there was so there's economists that did a study and showed that O-Net data showed that 30 or so tasks comprise most jobs. Only a few are easily automatable given current technology. So if you think about that, um, you know, all these other people predicting like what almost half of your jobs going away, if you look at it and break it down through an IO framework and a lens of like actual things and, and, you know, actions and all of those things you're supposed to do, not everything can be automated. So, you know, automation equals artificial intelligence. Like we talked about last week, it's not necessarily the takeover of the robots or the robot overlord, you know, that everybody is worried about. Um, It's interesting though. There are some robot takeovers. For example, I had a surgery done that was a robotic surgery. Um, And guess what? A human had to control the robot. So You know what I mean? And the robot was just doing as it, but it made my recovery much faster. There was a lot of good things for me as a patient and for the doctor too. Um, So something else to think about. So while it's a scary unstructured world there, I think there's so much possibility that's exciting um, and that we should just kind of, you know, think about that too. Um, And then obviously, just as you mentioned, Tom, like always lean on professionals like I/O psychologists who come to the table, with a lot of different perspective as far as you know how systems and processes work. Cause if you think about this is really just a big system. Um, right. So how can we you know benefit each other uh, through that is, is something to think about. So um,
8: yeah.
2: and we're not we're not going to leave the AI topic alone next week. We're right. gonna continue the discussion, right?
3: Oh yeah. So we don't have the determined topic right this second, but it will be posted soon. There is so much, and we're actually thinking, Tom, and, and you might be able to elaborate a little bit more potentially in the future. We're actually thinking about doing an entire podcast dedicated to just AI and um, all of its interesting quirks as we continue to move forward in the space. So,
2: yeah, this isn't going away. This is only going to grow and become probably more complex. So,
3: yeah. <laughs> yes. But then again,
2: we have game night, you know, as
3: well. That's right. We do. We have a, yes, there, there are some fun things to talk about too, you know, not just. (laughs) So yes, um, there are some events coming up, especially for our members. There's a mind trap game. There's all kinds of uh, different activities. We have an upcoming conference that's free once again, and we would love to have people come and attend that and learn more. So yes, lots of things going on and we appreciate everybody's support.
2: Well, thank you very much for that. And thanks everyone who participated in our panel today. And, you know, just a friendly reminder, if you'd like to join us here in the live version, we are on Thursdays, uh, depending on your time zone, depending on the time that we're on, Uh, but you are more than welcome to join us and share your voice with the rest of the IO world. All right, with that, uh, Dr. Destiny, perhaps you should count us out and we'll see everyone back here in one week's time. In
3: three, two, one...
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C dot com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.